The Retrograde Approach, Episode 17, supported by the ANZ SVS Early Career Development. We are very honoured and excited this week to welcome Dr. Nadal Katib to the podcast. Nadal is a vascular surgeon working at Sydney's St. Vincent's Hospital and Prince of Wales Hospitals. Nadal completed his vascular training in February of 2020 and he also uh, completed a further fellowship in Belgium in advanced endovascular and minimally invasive surgery. Originally born in Melbourne, uh, he graduated initially from the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin, Ireland, before returning to Australia to continue his surgical career. During his training, he completed his master, sorry, master's in surgical anatomy at Sydney University and his United States Medical Licensing exam. And apart from being a very busy vascular surgeon, Nadal also is a chair of communications for the ANZ SVS. Nadal, thanks for joining us. How you going? Thanks, Sam. I mean, this is this is a fascinating episode. From my end, it's the the meeting. It's almost the return of the Jedi style. You know, Sam, I've called you the Tibial Hunter, but I gather the true Tibial Hunter is one Nadal Katib. And the, now the joining of forces here of one Jedi Master and another Jedi Master puts me in a rather awkward position. I really don't know what I am in this relationship, but I'm here to watch it. Tell me all. I gather we're not talking about Tibial work today, but... The original t- Tibial Master is here with us. Well, I think, Man, what an intro. N- N- Nadal is Yoda and I'm Anakin Skywalker in the uh, the newer versions of Star Wars that were terrible. I still have Mate. to watch Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, you're not a Sith Lord. Just just, go, just take a step back. <laughs> it's not happening. Uh, but Nadal, we're really pleased. And, and as Sam said, we're very happy to have you on the podcast and um, a real privilege to have someone... Um, who has really taken um, their leaps and steps forward in their career and is making a mark in vascular surgery in Sydney. We really do appreciate the fact that we, we have the privilege to talk to you about not only about early career development tonight, but also your involvement with the ANZ SVS, um, the society that supports and looks after vascular surgeons around Australasia. And hopefully we can quiz you about some of the smaller, finer, finer details of that. Thanks a lot, Yogi. You know, it's it's a real uh, privilege. I really appreciate coming coming on. So, um, thanks a lot for having me, uh, Nadal. I guess perhaps I might kick this kick us off here. And um, one of the fascinating um, aspects of both Sam and myself uh, that we've recently gone through is we've completed our training. We've come to the end of five years and had to make sort of the decision between committing to, um, I guess, extra years of training in the form of a fellowship mm. versus making the leap forward into a consultant position. But I guess before we take that step forward, I guess the first thing to ask you, um, Nadal, is perhaps what do you see as the role of fellowships, especially after five years of dedicated vascular surgical training? And is there, and how do you distinguish between, say, a fellowship versus an observership and what, what do you think their roles are in our, in our training program after five years? 
Yeah, um, it's, it's a it's a it's a big question, and um, it's one of those questions that's really hard to answer, sort of in isolation. Um, I think it's it's got to be really part of your overall career and your, your big picture. Um, but generally, I think there is a lot of um, talk about maybe a fellowship not being as important now that vascular surgery is its own sort of training program, um, and you come out quite well trained having done five years dedicated in vascular surgery but I think definitely at least in in my view there's still a role for a fellowship particularly overseas fellowships and there's a lot you can gather and gain in experience in working in another unit and another health department overseas particularly that you otherwise wouldn't get if you just went straight into consultancy but it definitely has to fall into your overall plan and your overall picture. So I think this is where, you know, whether it's a five-year plan or a 10-year plan, if you've got a structured pathway ahead of you, a fellowship can fit in quite nicely and can make sense. Um, a lot of thought you have to put into is where you're going to go, uh, what country you're going to go to and what particular department you're interested in, in visiting. The difference between fellowships and observerships are quite, are quite, uh, they're quite different. Generally, I think if you're going to go overseas and you've got the time that is allocated for you to spend overseas, I would advise doing a fellowship. It's probably more worth your time unless you're after a particular skill set that's nice and quick and observership is usually shorter in duration. You can uh, go and do an observership in pretty much anywhere in the world and, and the application process is a lot more easy to navigate through. But a fellowship, I think, is where you're really going to gain your experience and particularly your skill set um, if you go overseas. Uh, I think there's different reason, reasons why people do fellowships. Uh, sometimes it's about gaining that particular skill set. Sometimes it's about just working overseas. And sometimes it's just about another hospital that's outside of um, the place that you will work long-term really gives you a lot of insight. And when you come back to work at your department, a lot of uh, information about how other systems can work. And, and it, that's, I think, of great value, which you otherwise wouldn't get exposure to potentially for the rest of your career. So I think a fellowship has a lot of value and I would, I would recommend doing it if you have the time and you have the, the patience and, and can organize it. But generally I think, um, and certainly what I found is organizing a fellowship is best done as early as possible. And if you know particularly where you want to go and what you want to do, that helps a lot because you can plan for it in advance. One particular thing that I've been, I've been told is if you're going to go overseas and get a new particular skill set, try and think about what value that's going to add to your career and particularly the department that you plan on working in. If you have a department that you're sort of flagged to work in that can help a lot because you can identify skill sets or a fellowship that can be of great value to the department that you ultimately join. That's one thing to consider. Otherwise, doing a fellowship in peripheral or open surgery or aortic surgery, which you otherwise may not particularly use when you return, can sometimes not be a waste of time, but not be as useful and as beneficial. So have a think about where you're going to land long-term and what skill set is going to be valuable for you when you return. And you can make, you can have those discussions and make those decisions early on in your career. Um, the other thing 
to think about is when you're going overseas, try and think about the application process. So I sort of planned to go to the U- to the US. And so the USMLE is obviously something you got to plan for well in advance. And you've got to sit your exams pretty much either before you start training, which not many people would have done, or during your early set years. And so I found the set one exam very um, easy to study for when I was studying for my GSSE and my my initial exams in training. So you set them at the uh, same time? Yeah, I did. I, I kept the same notes and I booked my step one exam at the start of set two and, um, and set that in Melbourne. Yeah. And, um, and the timing of the step, step one is a lot easier. Um, it's, it's a long exam. I think step one was about eight hours and step two CK was about nine hours. It's all multiple choice questions. So you've got to really build up the stamina to sit down in front of the computer for that long. Some people do them in much shorter time, but I took all the time I needed. Um, I needed all of it. But um, the the other one to think about is step two CS, which is the clinical exam. And you have to do that in the US. So I did mine in Atlanta. There's only four centers that you can do it in. I think it's Atlanta, LA, Philly, and uh, I think the other one's either Dallas or Houston. Uh, but you've got you've to book them like six or eight months in advance because the positions or the slots get booked out um, very early on and you've got to time your step two CS well before the ERAS residency match application, which usually opens the September, like the September, October before the following year when you start your program. So you have to have all those sort of ducks in line before you um, think about doing a fellowship in the U S um, step three, I think is advised, but it's not necessary. You don't need it for your, your ECFMG, which is what you need to do a, fellowship or a residency if you want it to be a structured fellowship um, otherwise you're just going to be doing an observership which isn't a bad thing but you're just limited in what you can do so you won't be able to um, operate or, or scrub in if you're only doing an observership so those things you kind of have to plan well well ahead in advance um, the other thing i was going to say is um, sometimes going overseas is good because you have the ability to maybe do an observership or a fellowship in a different department so I, um, I looked into maybe doing a, a fellowship in a cardiology unit in Italy, which didn't eventuate, but it's one of those things that you probably couldn't do in Australia. Um, yeah. But uh, it's something you could do if you go overseas. And I think there's a lot you can you gain in terms of seeing how different specialties do endovascular work. Mm. Yeah. When it comes what, what, to... What, yeah. what do you think about um, like a lot of those US fellowships, like especially those... Um, uh, very notable high-profile units. You look at their. Um, I'm sure you've seen them as well, Nadal. You see yeah. their um, fellowship breakdowns, and it says you'll be the third or fourth assistant. Yeah. After um, multiple other senior fellows. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what's your What was your take on all of that? Because I mean, after sitting eight or nine hour exams, it's, yeah. it seems like it's not worth it in a way. Um, look, I think one good thing about Australian trainees when you go over when you go overseas is that you are at that point you are extremely skilled you are you are very highly talented in your skill set and a lot of the stuff that you're going to pick up from your fellowship is not so much physically being able to deploy a graft or cannulate a limb Mm. it's more so the exposure of the thinking behind each case the discussions that take place around each case 
being in that environment where you see the systems in play, that's the real value of a fellowship. Um, the technical yep. side, thankfully, our vascular surgical program here in Australia and New Zealand is, is really, really good. So the technical side of things, I don't think you need to worry about too much. Those fellowships where you are sort of third or fourth assistant or third or fourth person around each case, I don't think is so much a deterrent. Like I think it's still valuable. Yep. So would you mind telling us, you know, where, where you went for your fellowship and why you decided to go there? Yeah, so uh, unfortunately for me, I finished training in February 2020. So I had planned to go to Belgium initially and for a, a shorter fellowship. And then I was going mm. to Oxford for 12 months. But uh, as soon as I got six weeks, in, six weeks into my Belgian fellowship, um, the pandemic pretty much changed the world and I came home. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, which is, which is uh, I think, the biggest challenge for a whole group of trainees now coming through felt their fellowship exam into the current COVID environment that overseas travel still, as we stand today, over 12 months on, is still difficult. And being able to travel overseas makes that extremely challenging. And I guess um, when we do finally open up to the international community and travel is allowed again. Uh, I think it will be fascinating to see <clears throat> whether um, people do decide to go overseas for fellowships. Because I think in the time um, that where we're going to have difficulty traveling, I do wonder whether local Australasian units may be able to provide some of those skill sets that people look overseas to. I mean, there are certain things that perhaps we can't do, we don't do, or we don't have the volume say, but, uh, you know, I, I agree with you entirely that our training program allows for us to come out competent and ready to go. But I guess particular units will have certain skill sets, which perhaps may have been learned overseas previously, but could be learned closer to home, especially those guys who went overseas and had, have come back. Um, and I wonder mm -hmm. whether that's going to be a shifting landscape in the years to come. Yeah. Yeah, one thing I would say about local fellowships is they also can be very valuable. In particular, I think if you're going to do a local fellowship, one thing I thought about, which I know some people have done, is branching out to gain a wider skill set, either in transplant or trauma. Yeah. And that's something which coming from a vascular background is, um, is possible and, and useful. Yeah, so I think that's, um, that's a good option. Also, there is this um, option of doing a fellowship in a place where you're sort of marked for a job. Mm. That's, a, I think, something which you have to sort of tread carefully around because obviously there's no promises or guarantees and just be upfront and careful about where you do invest your time. Yes. Um, yeah, that's good advice. And I guess the, I think you touch on a very a significant point there, Nadal, which is, you know, you finish five years of training and perhaps some, some trainees may still feel anxious about the idea of stepping into a role of consultancy. And so a, a fellowship also serves it's not, as, not only as a means of learning or observing a skill set or getting exposure to another healthcare system, but also just a bit more time in it where they are given sufficient amount of rope um, and can make individual decisions 
perhaps even be on the consultant roster in certain units. However, still have adequate backup in case something was to potentially be a problem that requires assistance. And I think that's still a valuable role uh, within our in, within the Australasian environment to support trainees that are up and coming. Yeah, absolutely. I think having said that, no matter what amount of years you do before you become a consultant, there's always going to be that steep learning curve when you finally do become your own sort of decision maker. And that's expected and normal, but absolutely like if, if you need some more years of training or fellowship exposure, I would definitely recommend it. Yeah, it's, it and it's, it's a very valuable time. Another thing I had sort of thought about, Nadal, and perhaps you've got some insights here, is just in terms of, especially if you go to Europe for some time, or um, what what are the sort of ways of um, managing yourself financially, and what were um, what are the options available there, if any? So financing your time when you go overseas is something you got to plan very early on too, and yep. there's different options. There's self funding, of course, if you saved up enough money by the end of your training, which is not always uh, easy. Second one is obviously industry. Um, I would uh, say just be careful around getting industry involved and sort of funding your fellowship overseas. There are a lot of um, things that you need to go through in terms of making the funding appear as if it's more of an educational grant, and that can be sticky sticky at, at times yeah um particularly if you're coming back and working in a particular department maybe that funding from that industry has to be allocated from that department the other option is seeking financial support through scholarships or traveling uh, fellowship funding which comes from either the college or the society which i would recommend applying for those those are always good scholarships and things that you can put on your CV as well. So there are awards and there's um, also that benefit of having that finance come from the college. And so there's, a, there's different ways, I think, of funding your time overseas. But generally speaking, it's not a time where you're going to make and save money. It's a time where you're going to be investing money and time into further education. Yeah. And, and I guess that's perhaps a distinct advantage sometimes of doing a local-based fellowship in the sense that you end up being paid potentially as a registrar and you'll end up with a certain, at least you'll you'll earn an income. Perhaps when you go overseas to a, a different unit, um, you may not, it may not always be funded. Is that a fair comment, Nadal? Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, you and, may not. And I guess those are the other considerations as Nadal talks about. I mean, I think, you've got to have a plan in place and it has to suit you and it has to suit the people around you that are dependent on you as it then dictates what trajectory you take. Mm. Um, and I, I think perhaps that leads on quite nicely, Nadal, uh, onto our next question in terms of um, being more specific in terms of deciding whether to pursue a fellowship or a consultancy position yeah. um, when that comes up. And uh, not a lot of trainees have the opportunity of transitioning directly from training into a consultant role. And so fellowship is seen as the potential stepping stone. But in those people who potentially have the option of choosing one or the other, uh, this, is this can be quite a difficult decision. Um, yeah. And as Sam touched on earlier, it, you sort of quickly realise it's your name at the end of the bed and the decisions you make 
are ultimately yours and you're responsible for what happens to the patient. And so that can be quite a big leap to take initially. Um, I, uh, Sam and I um, sort of were in the same position when we finished training. We were very fortunate to go from where we are into a consultant role. And we both um, have sort of uh, had to take the big leap forward, which at times, I don't know, Sam, potentially anxiety provoking, but also exciting as it is. So yeah, look very rarely anxiety provoking, but sure, yeah. That's that, that's because then. Sam wakes up twirling a wire in his hand, and as he goes to sleep, he has that wire twirling all the time, um, because he can. Look, by the time you put on your you know your, your twelve supercilia clamp, it's not really exciting anymore. Is it? Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess um, Nadal, uh, apart from say needing the confidence to sort of take that leap forward. What are the sort of other considerations in your mind when it comes to that um, fork in the road in terms of which way to go? Should we, you know, what what would be your advice to a trainee that's just finished their fellowship exam, has the potential for taking a consultant role versus taking a fellowship role? What do you see as the distinct advantage, disadvantages of both? Yeah, well, I think the most obvious one is just remember that if you go down the fellowship role, eventually you will become a consultant. But if you go down the other road first, it's very difficult to go back and do a fellowship. So if a fellowship is one of those things that's a non-negotiable in your career, and it might be, then definitely take that step first. Um, Because I think it's um, very difficult to go from starting your consultancy and then planning a fellowship in a couple of years, which although for now, given the whole pandemic and restrictions a lot of people might have to do. For example, in my case, I was still planning on going overseas after a year or two of consultancy because of the restrictions of travel. I think it makes it very difficult and you have second thoughts about pursuing that. Um, so if you can decide early on and it's a it's something that you really want to do, I'd, I'd recommend doing the fellowship first. The other thing is... Um, we're all sort of bound by financial constraints and commitments outside of our professions. So that's obviously something you have to sort of weigh up and consider whether or not you're going to invest some more time and, and a period where you're not quite financially uh, sound and stable versus uh, going into a consultancy job. The other thing I would say is that consultancy jobs, yes, are rare. And having the opportunity to take one up straight away is not always an option. So think about whether or not an opportunity comes to you that might not present itself later on. That's maybe a bit short-sighted in, in, in your view if you decide to take the consultancy job just because it's available. But certainly it's something to consider if that's something that if that's your dream job and that's the job that you always wanted then, you know, there might be some value in, in taking up that path early and first. Uh, are you a believer in the concept that sometimes you're just in the right place at the right time when it comes to these sort of things? Absolutely. There's definitely a lot of people I know who got consultancy positions who just happen to be, you know, at the right place at the right time. And, um, you know, other people who were, extremely qualified and suited for positions and roles and really well suited for a department, but there just wasn't any space. And that's just 
unfortunately just the reality that we have with any sort of work and and opportunity yeah i guess in a a competitive marketplace where you've got well-trained uh vascular consultants at the end of the day when you finish training you're just as um you're just gonna you're gonna be just as um comparable to your colleagues who've come out and um yeah there's i guess you've got to demonstrate value to the unit that you wish to be a part of and and then contribute to going forward um i think on the on the flip side of that um nadal i guess going you know those who then pursue the line of consultancy and as you talked about the commitments that you have extend beyond just the workplace but also someone like yourself who's not only got a public interest but also runs a, a set of rooms the the impact that you know taking time away to do a fellowship on your patient care privately also becomes a big concern and trying to juggle that um you know once you've already started as a consultant adds that extra dilemma to it um mm. and and, and it, like you said it's not easy however i guess if you desperately wanted to you could i guess and um you know, there are definitely stories of uh, the forefathers of vascular surgery in Australia taking time away from their private practice to go and learn some endo skills back in the day, right? And so mm-hmm. I guess if you really, really wanted to, you could find a way, but it is not easy. And you end up probably doing shorter stints rather than 12-month stints. That was probably the the, the, the consideration. Mm, definitely. Uh, and I guess like, I've got a question for you, Sam. I guess you're, uh, you and I uniquely are in a similar position having come out of training in the last 12 months, but you took on a consultancy role straight out of training. Um, where, where, in, in the sort of, in your mindset, where did you see a fellowship? Was it something that you were considering or planning and were you always thinking of just sort of hitting the ground running and you know, starting practice as a vascular surgeon? Yeah, I mean, um, I was uh, considering a fellowship um, uh, after the, well, I had thought about for some time, even well before the exam that, you know, would be good to go overseas. In particular, I was thinking about going to Europe for some time, had a particular um, areas or a couple of areas I was interested in going to. Um, Obviously then, you know, same sort of story as Adal, the pandemic hits and then all those plans are basically out the window. Um, even sort of quite uh, early on, I was thinking, well, I sat the sort of, I was thinking about going to France and sort of set the French language exam as a way to do that in November of 2019. And then since I've forgotten all my French, but, <laughs> <laughs> but then the pan- again, the pandemic happens and, and yeah. So, but then the same sort of thing we're talking about being in the right place at the right time, then a couple of consultant jobs suddenly crop up when you think there actually may never be a consultant job in the next two years and then you know life continues and you just take them and move forward like i i would still like to potentially maybe do a sabbatical in a few years just take maybe three months off and see if i can go to europe with the family for a little bit and um you know do something a little more sub-specialized but um yeah that wasn't my thought process i guess it's a combination of covid and right place right time mm. but it is what well, once you have a job in front of you it is very hard to turn that down and i imagine if you know i got to the point where the fellowship's about to start and then someone says hey you want this really attractive job 
it would be hard to decide which one you take. And yeah. I think, you know, there's probably are a group of people who get to the point they want to sit a fellowship where their motivation is actually to make them a more attractive consultant, as in more attractive to hire. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly sure a lot of people um, put that thinking into their equation as well. I'll pose a slightly more controversial question mm. for both of you. Um, now, as much as um, as much as a unit sees you as the right fit, I've always thought that when you join a team, you also need to be the right person for that team. It works both ways. Mm. The relationship needs to be such that you see value in how you can grow and develop in a unit, especially in the environment where fellowships, especially overseas fellowships are difficult. And so you as an individual and you as the surgeon looks at, looks at a unit and goes, Hey, I feel like I can grow in this unit when given the opportunity to do that as much as a unit looking at you saying, Hey, he's a great fit for the, unit, or he or she is a great fit for the unit. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that and whether you, you saw that being a two way street when it comes to building a relationship with a unit, especially for those trainees out there looking at consultancy positions. Some of you, like Sam, may be offered a few positions at once. And the question is then to figure out whether you're the right person for the unit and how do you, how do you gauge that relationship? Yeah. I mean, um, there's a lot to unpack there, Yogi. I think, you know, the first thing you, the first thing is, you know, I think, it is a little bit unfortunate that, you know, we do have this sort of VMO model in um, parts of Australia where, you know, you essentially are awarded a fractional appointment and for people who don't understand what that means, you're sort of given certain number of sessions per fortnight, which really never amounts to full-time. And so you get sort of given, you know, maybe like four days a week at very most in one hospital and then you go as a new consultant, okay, what else am I going to do with my time? I'm not going to, I'm not going to walk into a booming private practice. So I'm basically going to do four days a fortnight of work and then sit on my hands the rest of the week and try and find something else to do. There's a lot and of, there's a lot of NBA to watch, Sam, a lot of NBA to watch. <laughs> but I mean, the reality is, you know, you come out from as being a final year trainee or a fellow and you're working, you know, a lot of hours a fortnight that does actually equate to a reasonable pay. And then all of a sudden, you're making a lot less than that because you've got all of a sudden no work. And so what happens is people take up all these uh, different appointments everywhere. So the one thing you notice is actually a lot of hospitals within themselves have their own sort of microcosm of culture. And I guess <laughs> comparing some of the places I work, uh, some of them are very culture-centric. And yes, you do have to be sort of symbiotic in that relationship with the other surgeons. Whereas potentially another hospital I work, not naming which hospital in particular, Everyone are sort of, sort of. Um, I feel like everyone's a bit more of an individual, and everyone's kind of free to do their own thing. And it's just like you know, with anything in society, whether that's a business place or, uh, you know, I, I imagine lawyers and dentists and everyone will be sort of fairly similar. Some cultures work in certain places and some don't. And the reality is, if you're a disruptor, usually the disruptors don't progress and are uh, cut loose. So. Mm. Or cut themselves loose. Nadal, yeah, I, yeah sorry, Jeffrey. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think every state's different, and New Zealand's very different to Australia, and every department in those states are very different as well. And there's different types of structures. Like there are departments that are very hierarchical, hmm. and 
there's a pecking order and some people prefer to work in that environment um, and some people prefer to have the security of people they can rely on and depend on for big cases and there are departments where the other extreme is you're on your own and there's very little presence of other surgeons around if you need them and there's some sort of sweet spot where if you're lucky you work in a department where there's good collegial support and an environment that encourages you to have autonomy but also offers you enough support that you need to practice as a young consultant and if you can find that I think that's very valuable it's certainly something that I've been advised to to seek and it's certainly a long-term goal that you want to work in a place where you're going to get along with not only the other vascular surgeons but the systems in that department and that's pretty much what's going to make your your life either um, really easy to to live with or very difficult yeah and I think valuable thoughts from both of you there and I think especially for trainees out there listening to the podcast um I think in the midst of all the other things you need to think about as you head into this part of your career, it's also um, getting a having situational awareness in regards to the unit and the microcosms as Sam talked about that makes the unit the environment that it will be. And I guess having worked in units and hopefully going back to units as a consultant perhaps gives you better insight. However, that may not always be the case. Um. So I guess moving on from there, um, Nadal, I guess uh, the, the, the next thing to sort of perhaps consider um, is so you've hit the ground running and you've become a consultant. Um, and I guess initially the first way that you do that is you get a public appointment. Um, and as Sam mentioned, that may be a couple of hours or a couple of sessions per week. How do you also then decide or when do you consider sort of commencing private practice and what are the sort of considerations you need to put into account as you sort of step into that, um, into that mindset? Yeah. So again, it's different state to state. Most places in New South Wales with New South Wales health, having sort of outsourced outpatient follow-up to individual consultants, having rooms, most, play, most people who work in New South Wales are going to have to have some form of private practice unless you work as a staff specialist, which are very um, few spots for that sort of arrangement. Um, and in those particular arrangements, you're sort of limited in how much private practice you can do and there's pretty much only a weekend uh, available um, opportunity for you to do private practice. But if you're a VMO in New South Wales, then you're going to have some sort, some form of rooms that you have to run. And that's something which is very different to what you've been trained your whole life to manage and do. It's just basic business stuff that you pick up very quickly because it's not, not that difficult, but it's very new. So there's a lot of things to consider. Um, there's definitely the course that the college offers is something I would recommend, which is the Younger Fellows Program, which is a two-day program, a crash course in how to set up your rooms and all the things to think about. The things that you got to really take into consideration are things like financing, accounting, how you're going to structure your pay and how you're going to structure your billing, secretarial staff and reception and dictation, all that stuff comes into 
something that um, can be a headache or can be run very smoothly depending on how you manage it. Um, things to remember, I think that was very important is uh, remember that most VMO contracts you're going to be paid not as a PAYG but in full. So you need to remember that some of that or half of that income is going to be taxed or going to be more of the income is going to be taxed, but half of that income is going to be have to and have to be paid at the end of the year. So don't go spending all your money. I would advise saving at least half of it for when you have to do your tax return. Um, so it, they don't tax it in, in New South Wales? It's... I don't, what was that, Sam? They don't, they don't uh, tax your pay in New South Wales. It's very, they definitely tax it in Victoria, but oh, I, okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah, New South Wales as a VMO with New South Wales Health, you get paid pre-tax. Pre-tax, Okay. Um, and then your you declare your full taxable income mm. minus your deductions, and then you declare how much you have to pay in tax. So is that because you uh, bill for what you do, as in let's say you have a list with certain operations, you then bill for the operations, or are you paid per hour? So as a VMO in New South Wales, you're – you're contracting to you, you. Most VMO contracts are zero plus hours, and there's some sessional mm. pays, but most of the pay is done through uh, what we call V money, which is you just submit your hours, and then you get paid in full as a contractor. Okay. Um, you get paid into an ABN, either as a sole trader or a um, sole proprietary company. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, and then and then the rest of it, I think, is just regular business, just running rooms, um, having to deal with um, all the accounting and financing. And there's a lot of programs that you get familiar with using and also your software. And I think um, the one thing you got to remember is just try and be meticulous with your timesheets and with your documentation because you can be audited. It's not uncommon. Um, but um, yeah, it's one of those things that you're not really trained to do. Also read over your contracts that you have with the different hospitals and I think one thing um, which is important is if you get offered partnership with another colleague or if you get offered to join a practice, just be very thoughtful and careful about the arrangement. Have an open discussion with whoever you're joining in full and, and make sure that you're comfortable with them. Discuss everything and make sure you have a time frame and a contingency plan and an exit strategy in place because the last thing you want to do is start off your career committing to an arrangement that you're not going to be comfortable with long-term. And there are, unfortunately, people who will try to take advantage of you. So when it comes to things like percentages, just be mindful of exactly what that percentage involves and have an open discussion with whoever you're joining if you're joining rooms or private practice, um, mm. there is there is um, in other specialties a, almost a, an expectation that people you join in practice take a percentage of all your consultations and operative billing, and that isn't as common in vascular surgery from uh, what I've heard, but it does exist, and some people will offer you that, and that might be fine for you. That might be something that you're happy to engage in. But if you're not, then just be very upfront at the start. And if you only want to do it for a short period, make sure you have the timeline and a time frame and also a contingency plan for when you don't want to pursue that anymore. So just be yeah. as open as possible with whoever you join. 
Yeah, so I think there's really there's really sort of two models I've realized. There's one, so what you're talking about is profit sharing. So i.e. you bill whatever, then we'll take a certain percentage of it. And then there's another sort of model, which is fee sharing. So um, you, you come in, you'll use the rooms for an hour, sorry, for four hours, and you'll use a secretary. So that cost is roughly, you know, 100 and something to 200 and something dollars for that session. Or your cost of the, your share of the expenses is this. And that's potentially, in my opinion, that may be actually a more uh, equitable solution for some people. But yeah, I think there are really two sort of models. One, you take, we'll take a percentage of your profits, but the advantages are you may get more referrals from the get go. You're going to see more patients. So therefore, that percentage is offset by the amount of people you'll see and operations you'll do. And then the other one is you're kind of on your own, but you'll pay your share of the expenses. Yeah. And then, and then obviously, you know, different practices have different levels of expenses. So some practices obviously run a bit more frugally than others and some will have, you know, very uh, different expenses because they've got like, you know, like six people behind the desk or something. So yeah. Plus all that's very important to look at. Yeah. I guess, um, Nindal, just touching very quickly on what you'd mentioned before, there are avenues through the college to sort of upskill yourself in some of these things that we may not learn specifically through training. And, you know, you, uh, but I guess through this journey, you've gone out of your way to potentially have, to have conversations with colleagues or mentors to try and get a feel for how to get yourself sorted or getting yourself out there. Is that sort of the approach you took or? Um, yeah, I, 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 talked to a lot of people. I consulted widely. I did a lot of research, like most things that we're sort of trained to do. The more research we do, the more comfortable we are with making a decision. And so that's the approach that I I took. But there's some people who would rather have nothing to do with business and have no headache at all and are happy to pay an extra premium to not have to worry about any of it. And that's understandable. Um, But if you're someone who would rather control their own billing and be sort of on top of everything that happens, then, you know, you might not mind being involved with the the ins and outs of running a practice. And there's a lot of things that you learn along the way that you could learn from others. Things like a commercial lease, make sure you have that reviewed, make sure you don't use personal guarantees, financing, make sure you've got a timeframe and a way out of that if things don't work out. So all these little things that you otherwise don't really know about, just make sure you've done your research and you're comfortable. And if you need to pay a little bit extra for consultation and getting sound advice, then my advice is pay that little bit extra. Yeah. Yeah. I was speaking to a surgeon actually a couple of days ago who runs his own solo practice and um, he's basically decided I'm going to pay my staff extra per hour i'm gonna have two of them so the sick days are covered and that's my way of sleeping at night knowing that i've got my own rooms i don't sublet to anyone so i'm not subletting from anyone i've got two staff if there's a sick day someone's covered and i'm going to pay a premium but i know that everything's sorted and i think that's his own individual way of doing it and that's great you know that's um that's peace of mind and you know that's how he's decided to run his practice so obviously lots of ways to do it and i guess the sort of follow-up question to that there are various models in which practices exist and so you guys have talked about uh the structures but also the entity in which it takes place so sometimes you know you may be asked to join a room uh, or rooms of others 
But I guess um, some people also have, say, remote practice managers and sublet sessional rooms um, as part of building a practice initially to get themselves up and running. Um, and I know a colleague of mine, but I'm sure um, Nadal, at one point in your in your young consultant career, you were both the, the surgeon, the secretary, the accountant, the the person doing the dictations, as well as the post-operative care person. Yep, very much so. Yeah, yeah, and, and the and the periop physician. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Re- remembering to stop the flows in three days preoperatively. Well done. Um, now, I guess the next part of our discussion, Nadal, was really to talk about, uh, I guess, a change in mindset, which is having been a trainee for five years and then becoming the consultant, transitioning from being, uh, transitioning to becoming the trainer and the mindset you go into, um, not only the work environment, um, meaning the ward, sorry, but also the operative environment and how do you how, how did you make that leap and what sort of things did you take into account actively to try and facilitate that change? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question and it's one of those things you learn on the job because, again, you're not really, I mean, you are sort of taught to some degree and certainly now there is some components in our training weekends where we're taught to sort of deal with people and manage people. But Becoming a trainer, I, I feel, was a, a learning experience um, and, a, and a, a trialing one. And, um, you know, it's just one of those things where you go through training where the focus is on sort of resilience and mental stamina and just getting ahead and focusing on your own career and your own knowledge and making sure you can, you know, show up sharp and get all the jobs done to all of a sudden becoming responsible for people and dealing with people's interactions with each other and dealing with systems and dealing with um, a whole environment of humans. And I think uh, it's where, you know, all the emotional intelligence that you, that you've got somewhere needs to come out and um, dealing with trainees in particular can be challenging, but if you're lucky, you get a good trainee, then it's, you know, a walk in the park and it makes your life much easier. But also in terms of uh, actual training in theatre, I think that can be a challenge and it's a learning process and you get better at it. There's obviously when you start off being a consultant, there's this issue about letting go. That's normal. That's sometimes maybe um, draped in a bit of insecurity because you're not sure what the trainee can do comfortably, also what you are comfortable fixing. And so there's a learning curve and I think you get better at sort of sussing out what the trainee can and can't do and when you have to absolutely step in and intervene. But I think um, it's something that you get better at Um, and it's a fine balance sort of between patient safety and and the importance of training. Yeah, and I guess the knowing how much rope to let go before being able to pull um, sort of a situation back which is potentially irretrievable is always difficult and um sam and i talk about this a lot i think i uh, i I still find it an environment that i'm still learning to feel comfortable in especially when you when you can foresee problems arising and you're trying to uh i guess trying to have an environment where you can teach but also trying to keep everyone around you safe in particular the patient safe um 
that can be quite a challenge. And, and, and I think, and I don't know whether you guys agree with me or not, but sometimes with endovascular intervention, that can be quite difficult, especially if the first attempt is not particularly the best attempt and it can make a, it can make your day a lot more difficult trying to salvage back a problem um, and add extra complexity to an intervention, which perhaps in the first attempt may have been the best attempt. And that that's hard knowing when to allow that to happen. And it's those moments that I, I feel very grateful that I had trainers and surgeons around the country that allowed me to make mistakes when I was a trainee and just sort of looked at me with just initially aghast when I did do it, but I guess was supportive enough to hold my hand and get me through it and sort of, and, and I guess trying to get to that point is where I'm still at, I guess, and as, 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 as a, it's an incredibly difficult journey as you go through it. Yep. Yeah, definitely. And Sam, I don't know whether you had any particular thoughts from your time so far and how you balance that. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess the other side of it is sometimes when you do get a trainee who's uh, very confident and wants to do everything and then you're kind of like, well, I'm kind of the new surgeon. I kind of want to make sure everything goes well. You do have this you know, desire inside of you to make sure, A, everything goes well, but you kind of feel like you want to do everything. And it is really hard letting go of the reins and, you know, watching someone else do a case that's really um, under your supervision. Um, so, yeah, like it is hard, sometimes hard if the trainee is a bit too confident then you're like you feel somewhat awkward trying to get them to put the brakes on and say, you know, actually, can I do this? And, you know, I do feel a bit, you know, funny sometimes asking because it's like, well, I shouldn't feel funny asking because... It's my name on the bed card at the end of the day, so I shouldn't really feel a bit reserved about saying, can I do this one? So, I mean, yeah, look, there's a lot to... Um, I think the feelings, you know, evolve daily and depend on the trainee and will probably change over time. So, um, but, you know, um, uh, you know, being a registrar, I did have a first-year consultant start once and when that person arrived, they basically said, just so you know, I'm a new consultant. I'm going to do everything. And they kind of at that stage just set the benchmark for the rest of the year. And there were no really questions asked about who was doing a case. So I think there's lots of ways to do it. And obviously it depends on the operation you're doing and the individuals involved. Yeah, I think communication early to sort of set expectations so people aren't disappointed I think is important. And I guess another strategy that I try and utilise, especially in the operating theatre, is dividing up a procedure into different segments and sort of doing bits that I feel need to be done in a particular way, perhaps, or wanting to sort of be comfortable that it's been done and then letting go of certain things and being willing to be more accommodating with other things. And, and I agree with Nadal's comments earlier. I think as time goes on, I think you get better at it and you can figure out what's going to work and what's not going to work. Um, but also I think it you, begin to read your registrars better. I think you get a feel for how much preparation has gone into it, how much awareness they have of it, the imaging, whether they've looked over it and understand the case. And you get a, a good feel for um, whether they're ready to undertake the procedure individually or not, or whether that's an endo open case. Um, and I think that allows you then to gauge how much you sort of, chip, you know, chip in or not. Um yeah. yeah, I think that's interesting. Yogi. There is a lot to um, actually talk, like unpack there in terms of 
reading the registrar's tone over the phone and a understanding how much I've actually thought about the case, or um, I guess another similar example is if they call you about a patient and they're like, "Well, I think the leg is all right," or "Yeah, no, I mean he's got an aneurysm, but he's—I don't know if his abdominal pain is this." Like trying to just read what they're not saying, I think there's an art form in that as well. I think it also comes back to the type of department that you work in as a junior consultant. Obviously, like the consultant that you sort of described who wants to do everything on his first year out or her or she, um, you know, they're, they're probably worried about their outcomes. They might be in a department that, you know, is a little bit accusatory or very sort of putting junior consultants under a microscope and, Unfortunately, I don't think that environment is really going to bring out long-term sustainable um, outcomes. And I think, yeah. you know, if you're in a department like that, that's something to consider, you know, maybe if you want to be there long-term and uh, or can do something to change the environment or the, um, the culture there. But I think if you do that, you're just putting off something that you eventually have to learn, and, and that is being a good trainer and, and teaching trainees how to, to operate. Um, I guess, uh, Nadal, just uh, moving on perhaps to the next part of this discussion, which was to talk about professional development. Um, as trainees, uh, when we go through a training program, we're within an environment where we've got an end goal, we're learning this knowledge base to allow us to develop the re- relevant skill sets to A, perform a procedure, B, um, assess and manage patients, see, get through an exam, which tries to bring that all together, develop some high order thinking. We get to the end of our five years of training and then we're in, we sort of get caught up in like our little environments, you know, units that do particular, you know, practice, practice in a particular way, perhaps, and you, that becomes your standard of practice, standard practice. You might go to a conference once or twice and you can sit in the back and bicker about how they're using onyx or uh, some sort of weird embolic agent when you actually use a coil and you're sort of exclaiming as to why the costs are so high. But I guess the point I'm getting at is you get to the end of training and now you're a consultant. How do you keep your, how do you maintain that learning? How do you, how do you maintain the ability to learn a new skill or to learn about new technology or new products? What do you do um, to allow, allow you to do that going forward? I guess I'm motivated by two things. Obviously, there's the CPD requirements that you have to do, um, which for the first year that you're out, by the way, is not necessary. But also, I think, also beyond that, I think it's, it's, I think it's really nice this time of your career where you're operating your developing your own skill set and you have this opportunity now to when you attend conferences and workshops hopefully one day or you know attend them online or when you do particular learning it's directed at your own skill set on your everyday work and I think that's that's something nice like if you have a particular area of interest in your day-to-day work you can learn something that isn't just for an exam it's for how you're actually going to have better outcomes. So that's an exciting time. I think that's a, a good motivator to have. But also I think throughout your career, you're already sort of geared up to do research and do teaching and do education. And so if you continue on that path and have that, like I said earlier, the, 
the bigger picture and bigger plan, then I think it's it's quite um, it fits in quite nicely just to have that ongoing pathway for your research and your education. And there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of avenues in which you can pursue all those um, aspects to your career. So, for example, uh, I'll just you know throw out a couple like editorial board journals will approach you for being a reviewer, um, such as the ANZ Journal and locally and other journals. Um, the research that you do can be ongoing if it's at your department at the university. You can get involved with becoming a site um, investigator on particular studies. There's lots of supervision of medical students and teaching that you can get involved with and residents as well. And the list goes on. So I think it's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity and, and it should be something that you should try to structure. Mm. But also you should also try to enjoy it as well because it's something that you're going to have to do long term. And it's something that you're sort of trained to structure and, and pursue. Yeah. And just a second that I, earlier this year, um, I uh, had a lady with venous thoracic outlet syndrome and I desperately wanted to do an intraclavicular first rib. And I had not done one for a very long time in the unit that I work in doesn't do infraclavicular first ribs and i've got to say there was nothing more exciting than picking up a textbook again to read about how to do it and then having the opportunity to do that because not only was it a learning experience for myself having to go through the steps but i got to reach out to the person who taught me back when i was a second year trainee but also to have a chat to the guys within my unit to talk about how i did it and and also we had a trainee scrub so they could watch and get a feel for what was actually going on it's not something that they were going to see that often within the unit themselves. And so um, it was actually a very rewarding exercise in terms of continuing to challenge yourself to pick up a new skill. And as, and as you talked about Nadal, I guess the practicality of being able to take a concept or an idea that you've either read about, visualized or participated in, whether that's in a workshop and then bringing it back and trying to find a patient that's appropriate for it. All right. And, doing the best in terms of our patient care and their delivery. Um, I'm sure that would have got you excited as well, Sam. You would have loved to do an infraclavicular. I thought you were going to finish with that. After the x-ray showed that I had successfully removed the second rib partially, I uh, decided that... <laughs> You're such a cynic. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, no, and I think um, that the other thing you talk about, Nadal, is just, you know... So many people have given up their time and effort during our five years of training, all, all three of us. And it is this it is in this part of our career that we have the ability to give back to all of those junior registrars, unaccredited registrars, but also our nursing staff and, and our teams in terms of um, giving back our time, but also the ability to provide hopefully some knowledge from our time in training, but also the things that we've learned since. And I know that's for all of us, that's hopefully a passion that we enjoy. And apart from the work, it's the ability to give back to those groups of people, um, which makes it important. Definitely. Uh, now on a final note, because Sam's telling us to sum up, but I think um Nadal, one of the other things I think that'd be worth just quickly talking about is the society, um, and that's the Australian New Zealand Society of Vascular Surgery, which is the overarching entity that looks after vascular surgeons around Australia and New Zealand. And 
a question I have for you is really how we as new trainees and consultants stepping out into the big bad world and how we can help contribute to our society and the environment that it's in and what roles are out there for us to contribute because um, the society as a whole has always been seen as a big umbrella entity above, above us as trainees, but understanding the various facets of it is much more difficult. I know that there's an executive and I know that the, there is a board and the two entities work simultaneously but are different and then are governed separately, one by the society and one by the college and so the entities that fall within that. But could you talk about the, the role the society plays, what roles you see junior surgeons uh, within the society playing and the, the things that you see into the future that our society will continue to develop and grow? Yeah, I, I only recently just joined the executive committee of ANZSVS and it's just been a huge experience, like learned so much already and it's, it's an exposure into a, a whole new world, which is really interesting. And it's, it's, really, it's really incredible how much time all these members give up for free. And uh, they're doing it, you know, really for the vision and for the good of our community, which we're all a part of. So I think it's, um, it's an incredible thing to be a part of. I think the society has a huge amount of work that it has to do and is doing. There's so much opportunity for other people and particularly young consultants to, to get involved and be a part of. There's a lot of subcommittees that the society sets up or, or sub-collectives that uh, are available for younger consultants to join. And they really do, and we really do need the help. Um, the role that the society plays is basically advocating and supporting vascular surgeons, but also supporting vascular surgery as a specialty um, and as a service in Australia. And there's a lot of things that we can work on. Um, I guess when you compare our society to other societies, we're very lucky in that we're still a very small community. Um, we're not really subjected to some of the other things that other societies are subjected to, such as um, power grabbing and, and infighting. We're pretty much a solid small community, which really looks out for each other. And I think that's something that we should be proud of and we should really contribute to um, and try and definitely maintain. So I think for younger consultants, definitely something that um, they should try and get involved in is, is the society and, and reach out to the members and find subcommittees that they're interested in. There's lots of things that they're involved with, um, not only in terms of its um, self-survival um, and self-work, but also working on things like the MBS reviews that affect all of us in Australia, at least, um, and also other things that um, the society does is work with the board at the college and also our society meeting, which is annual, which involves a lot of work, which, um, which people can get involved with. And uh, I think the recent thing that I've sort of been involved with is the communications aspect of the society and reaching out to, for example, this podcast, to try and improve the image and, and the accessibility of, of the society to all its members. Yeah. And, and I think I would agree entirely that, we're a very small community and innately through the five years of training, we've had the privilege of meeting um, a whole group of people across the States um, 
around Australia, whether that's at dinner training weeks or in meetings. But I think it's maintaining that enthusiasm that they have had for us joining, uh, I guess, the fraternity of vascular surgeons for the younger guys that are coming through and, I guess, trying to not only maintain the, their enthusiasm, but also being able to talk about some of the historical aspects of vascular surgery in Australia, the, the journey that it's taken, but also how far it's come. And the reason we have a great training program in Australia is because of all the people that have gone before us that have set up a way of maintaining a good endovascular program, a good open program, and collectively provide you with a, an excellent skill set that at the end of it to come out and practice as a vascular surgeon. And I think uh, the society uh, draws together all the good things of that. And um, and hopefully, as you mentioned, Nadal, this podcast being one of the many facets that you're participating in uh, will hopefully only continue to allow the society to grow and hopefully spread its wings with that as well. well exactly, yeah. Well, as Sam starts to yawn because he's, he's, <laughs> he, he does, he's not as sentimental as I am. Um, I think it's a great moment to draw an end to this podcast. And Nadal, we really genuinely appreciate your time um, talking through yep. early career development um, and in particular also reflecting on your um, sort of time immediately after training and now into consultancy. Would you genuinely appreciate all of that? And um, we'd love to have you back on for a conversation of whatever area of interest you'd like to talk about into the future. And and I think we need a uh, an adult exam special. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh man, we could do that. We <laughs> it's could been do that. Such a long time. Well, you know, both Sam and I had the privilege of hearing you pre uh, prior to our exam, um, and I'm certain the guys that are going through still look at your slides about operative vivas. So, um, you know, there's a lot of quality that we can, we can get out of hearing from people that have gone through. So uh, let's lock that in, Nadal. We'd love to have you back. Excellent. Thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate it. This episode of The Retrograde Approach was proudly supported by the Australian and New Zealand Society for Vascular Surgery, the ANZ SVS. All views and opinions stated in this episode are those of the producers and hosts alone and do not represent those of the society. For further information, please visit anzsvs.org.au.